All right, this is Theology Breakfast with Redeemer Baptist Church, and a guest friend, Andrew, you're with me most weeks, but uh, I've been reading through these sermons from John Calvin. Theology Breakfast is a time where we get together and read works by brothers in Christ throughout church history, and we are reading these sermons from the Reformation in Calvin. Uh, this morning, the text that he's preaching from is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. The title, and this is put in here by the editor, so I don't... I don't know that Calvin titled his sermons. He doesn't seem like a sermon title. <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, Calvin's not a, a, you know, a master of gimmicks and marketing. He's like, I'm just preaching this next text. You know? So it's up to the editor in the you know, 21st century to, to give it a title. Anyway, um, yeah, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, and the title here is The Gift of Prayer. <clears throat> Here's what the text reads. I desire, therefore, that men offer up prayer everywhere, lifting up pure hands with, without anger or quarreling. Paul, having said that our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world as the Redeemer of all, and that the news of salvation is carried in his name to every nation, great and small, now exhorts each of us to call upon God in prayer. It is a true fruit of faith that we know God to be our Father and are, not, and are rather touched by his love. The door is open to us so that we may come to him. We have a ready entrance to pray to him, knowing that he has his eye on us and that he will help us in all of our needs. For until he calls us to himself, it would be sheer effrontery to think that we would come. Is it not foolish and reckless for mortal man to presume to speak to God? We must therefore wait for God to invite us, as he does moreover through his word. In promising to be our Savior, he shows that he is always willing to welcome us. He does not wait for us to seek him. He himself comes and urges us to pray to him, desiring in this way to test our faith. That is why Paul, in another place, writes that men cannot pray to God until the gospel is proclaimed to them. For there we read that God is ready to receive us, unworthy though we are. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. And when we learn of his goodwill toward us, we can come confidently to him, for he treats us, treats us as friends. A little later in the 15th chapter of the same letter, of Romans, the apostle adds, Praise the Lord, you nations, call on him, all you who are his people. Romans fifteen eleven, Signifying that the gospel is common both to Gentiles and Jews, and that every mouth should be open to entreat God's aid. We can now see how Paul's earlier comments led him to this second point, that men should everywhere call upon God. It is as if he said, My friends, God has welcomed you into his flock. You were once outside his church. He had no dealings with you. The Gentiles, being strangers to the promises which he gave to Israel, now, however, God has gathered you into his flock. He has sent his only son to you because of the fatherly love he has for you. Now you may have boldness to call upon him, which was why he gave you proof of his goodwill. All this is now ours, for whenever witness is born to God's kindness and his grace is promised to us, 
miserable sinners though we are, whenever we hear that by the death and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ our sins are forgiven, payment has been made for our debts, the bond that stood against us has been torn up and thrown away, and God is reconciled to us. The way is open to us to pray. As God says through his prophet Hosea, I will say, you are my people, and you will answer, you are our God. Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. As soon as our Lord permits us to taste of his goodness and promises that having once and for all sent his only son to us, he will accept us for his sake. We should not hesitate to come to him. It is as if he were commanding us to pray. One depends on the other. If we have faith, if we have faith, we must show it by calling upon God. But if we have no interest in prayer, it is a sure sign that we are faithless, however much we may claim to believe in the gospel. It should be clear how greatly God has blessed us by giving us the privilege of approaching him in prayer. The papists, it is true, are very good at mumbling their prayers, but they, they pray without assurance. They prove as much by running round in circles in search of patron saints and advocates. Why do they do it? Because they do not trust God to hear them, and because they are deaf to the promises by which he sweetly invites us to come to him in prayer. The papists know nothing of this. They are adamant that we should pray to God, but how? They do not know where they stand with him or how they might draw near. Their plight is truly miserable. They cannot turn to God for help and do not cease to tremble. On the other hand, our Lord confers a priceless privilege on us by assuring us that our prayers are never in vain. When we come in prayer, our hope will not be disappointed. God will not refuse us as long as we keep to the proper path of which Paul spoke earlier. We need, that is, to have Jesus Christ as our mediator to rely on the merit of his death and passion and to know that his office is to keep us safe. Since God, his Father, has been fully appeased, he will be gracious to us when we come to him in his name. This, then, is how we are to exercise our faith once we know that freedom, is, freedom to pray is an infinite blessing bestowed on us by God. Let us be diligent in prayer. Let us be careful morning and evening to cry to God since we are beset by needs every minute of the day, since his promises are continually dinned into our ears since he appeals to us by word and deed to come to him. Let us not be tepid or indifferent. Let us also recall that we cannot pray without the spirit of adoption and without the certain knowledge that he counts us as his children as he testifies in the gospel. That is one point. As often as we read in Holy Scripture, quote, pray to God and praise him, unquote, we should know that there we have a picture of the fruit of faith. Since God has revealed himself to us, has drawn near and given us such easy access, we may seek him, knowing that he is not hard to find, for he meets us halfway. That is what Paul means by the word everywhere, just as in, well, in the text in 1 Timothy 2, just as in the first letter of 1 Corinthians, he greets believers who call upon God, quote, in their place and in ours, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. There he associates the Gentiles with the Jews, having no wish to continue God's church to one nation only. 
That was indeed the situation under the law. But since the dividing wall has been broken down, and since God has put an end to the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, there is ample scope for people of all nations and lands to call upon God, for they now have access to his grace. Paul's aim, moreover, was to demonstrate that ever since Jesus Christ appeared in the world, the ceremonies prescribed by the law have been abolished. Under the law, it was necessary to go to the temple and to gather there in order to offer prayer to God. Of course, the Jews prayed each in his own house, but only in the Jerusalem temple could solemn sacrifice be lawfully made. That was the place which God had chosen. Because of the people's ignorance, sacrifices had to be made until there would be a fuller revelation of God's truth. The temple thus pointed to the fact that we always need a sign or mark if we are to come to God. Our Lord Jesus Christ is that sign and mark. For we cannot draw near to God unless we have someone to direct us. God is too high in his infinite majesty and glory, which far transcend the heavens, while we ourselves can scarcely manage to crawl upon the surface of the earth. We therefore need another sign to help us draw near to God, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews had it in symbolic form, but we have it fully in substance and in truth. It was also necessary that God should keep his people like little children in the unity of faith by means appropriate to their immaturity. We, however, have in the gospel so bright a light that there is no longer any need for these shadows of the past, since the order instituted by God under the law has now been superseded. I mean the temple in Jerusalem and all the other rituals. They must not detain us any longer. That is why our Lord Jesus Christ said to the Samaritan woman, quote, The hour is coming, and now is when God's true children will no longer worship on this mountain or even in the temple in Jerusalem. They will worship the Lord everywhere in spirit and in truth. John chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. There was much controversy at the, that time between the Jews and the Samaritans, for the temple in Samaria had been built in defiance of the Jews. Those who worshipped in it pleaded the example of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Jews had God's word, and Jesus Christ declared that hitherto the Jews knew what they worshipped, and that the teaching they observed was sound. Quote, you Samaritans, he said, were idolaters, but now there is no need to quarrel about the temple in Jerusalem or in Samaria. Why? Because men everywhere will call upon God in spirit and in truth. Observe then that since Jesus Christ was made manifest, we have nothing to do with the shadows of the ancient law. Let us be satisfied with a temple which is neither material nor visible, for in Jesus Christ there dwells the fullness of deity, and he is our brother. It is enough for us that he holds out his hand to us and is ready to bring us before the face of God, that through him we can enter the true spiritual sanctuary, and that God is pleased to receive us, that the veil of the temple is torn down, and that we no longer worship from the distant temple court, but can say aloud, Abba, a common word in Hebrew that is in the Syriac tongue, Romans chapter 8, verse 15, and Galatians 4, verse 6. Paul uses these two words, Abba, Father, in Hebrew and in Greek, to show that everyone in his own language is now free to address God in prayer. We need no special place, for just as the gospel is preached everywhere, so it is clear that everywhere in the world we may pray to God wherever we are. True, we may have many churches, but not like the Jews. We do not have to gather in a fixed place 
for God to hear our prayers. We have churches only for our convenience. <laughs> there was a place in the Mollard or in the Fusteri which was just as suitable as this. There would be no difference. It says down here, the Mollard and the Fusteri were adjoin adjoining wards or wards of Geneva. Would that be two different cities or towns or communities within a city or something? Wards? Yeah, well, I mean, like there's different wards of Washington, D.C. or, I don't know. There boroughs? Something that like, kind of maybe, maybe. Yeah, I mean, Des Moines, I think that we have different divisions like that. Yeah, okay. Situated in the lower part of the city and home to most of its merchant and business class. Okay. Remember then that we no longer have the shadows of the law and that, a si uh, th that at Christ's coming, all the old rites were abolished. We must bear this carefully in mind <clears throat> so as to avoid the tomfoolery of the papists and especially the superstitions which merely obscure real prayer. The Jews had their lights, their perfumes and incense and many other similar things which were used to worship God. Under the law, there was a priest, fully garbed, signifying that between God and men, a mediator was required who was no ordinary man. The papists have retained all of this, but by retaining it, what do they achieve? It is as if they are denying Jesus Christ. It is not what they intend, but it is nevertheless what they do. Before Jesus Christ, who is the true body, the substance of everything, came to earth, God chose to be served by the shadows of the law, as Paul writes in the letters to the Colossians, or the letter to the Colossians, Colossians 2, verses 16 to 17. So I ask you, do not those who now seek such ceremonies turn away from Jesus Christ? Do they not show that they know nothing of why he took our flesh, lived on earth, and died and rose again? Was it not so that we might look to him without the help of childish symbols, which were useful only for a time? That, that is how the papists and all the follies which they practice not only veil the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, but seek to suppress it altogether. Accordingly, let us learn to worship God and call upon him purely, avoiding anything which men might add or which our own brains might devise, and without borrowing from the ancient law which is no longer suited to us. In short, let us make the difference between the Jews and us perfectly clear, since in the gospel we now have a full revelation. And let us not offend God by extinguishing the light which he causes to shine before our very eyes. Since the Son of Righteousness, our Lord Jesus Christ, is now revealed to us, we can no longer walk in the dark shadows that we once knew when we were without God's light. For when we turn away from God's word, there is never any end. That's an interesting line. It's a good line. For when we turn away from God's word, there is never any end. Just keeps spinning and spinning. The papists, we know, have had their pilgrimages and still have them today. As they trot about in search of God, what have they got to show for it? Are they further ahead for having trudged miles on foot? It is not as if they have turned their backs on God. Let them run as fast as they can. All they will do is break their legs and their necks and end up further away from God than ever. Now, if we want to pray to God, as the gospel commands, 
Even as God is everywhere revealed and calls us to himself, we must answer him. So those who, for the sake of piety, run this way and that, prove that they make idols for themselves and thus abandon the living God by drawing away from him. We, however, grow more and more in the grace which God gives when he shows his fatherly face in the gospel and when he daily exhorts us to pray to him, revealing at the same time the way in which it should be done. Let us seize God's good gift since it is ours to enjoy. That is, relying on the promises of the gospel and with Jesus Christ to give us access, we can be sure that God will look with pity on us and that we may boldly call upon him without doubting that he will hear all of our requests. Praise God. Paul next urges that this be done. I'm sure somebody in the congregation at that point goes, Amen! You're right. <laughs> Paul's next urges Paul next urges that this be done without dissension and quarreling for the second word which he uses means dispute uh, before we jump into that next section any thoughts comments so far on this uh, no, I'm following the general outline where one we, we look at the gift of prayer um, prayer is not something that we rise up to it's something God condescends to give to us yeah. um, prayer is open because of the condescending grace of God. Uh, and then two, because of that, we ought to worship God, or pray to God, in a manner of purity. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I like how he draws this difference between the old covenant and the new. Uh, we no longer come to God through the mediation of a high priest and incense and facing the temple, um, right. because we have a new and perfect mediator who brings us into the throne room of God on his behalf. And this is a little bit tangential, but I think of like, Calvin's teaching on the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, he, mm. he teaches not that Christ spiritually comes down to us, but that the Spirit, it's by present. faith, rises <laughs> up into the throne room of God to be with Christ. So in Calvin's understanding, it's not Christ coming down, it's the Spirit lifting us up. And I think there's a, a tangent there to, to prayer. That Christ brings our prayers you know, into the throne room of God, so to speak, just as the high priest brought the sweet incense on the Day of Atonement into the most holy place. And Revelation draws that connection where the prayers of the saints are like incense before God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just with one. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's um, important to make it clear as well because of the way that um, prayer is often referred to in popular, wider uh, Christian circles is that there is power in prayer. Mm. You know, I believe like I believe in the power of prayer. Yeah. You know, gives it a magical element. Yeah, or in itself, or kind of like you know, I don't think I don't know if anybody even does this stuff anymore. But there was a popular form of kind of liturgical worship that they called like ancient future worship. You know, and they would wear robes and have candles and like yeah. somehow if you light some candles and create a mood or a vibe in the room, that somehow that makes your prayers more effectual or something like burning incense or I mean like uh, kind of adding things that would be kind of like human additions to our prayers that would somehow make them more acceptable to God yeah. or even the tendency for um, you know praying to the saints um, or having some other type of mediator that would be something other than Christ mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just a 
it's a common temptation to downgrade the accessibility that God has condescended to give in Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit into our hearts that we would try to come up with all these other methods to kind of somehow make our prayers more meaningful mm. or acceptable in God's sight. Yeah. Whereas, you know, just a normal human being not adding anything or praying to anybody else, trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, praying to God, he hears us. Mm. But he doesn't hear us if we don't have Christ. Yeah. And so these kind of like general pronouncements of the, I believe in the power of prayer, well, but do you have a saving knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because if you don't, your prayer is powerless. Mm -hmm. You may feel, you know, kind of pumped up by it, by whatever additions you do, or making yourself come into an emotional state, or whatever, but if you do not have a saving interest in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God will not hear your prayers. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that uh, it further removes any boasting in anything that man can do, yep. and it centers yet again all of our hope on the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. Anyway, mm-hmm. I just think it's important to make that clear. And then he he's coming back to assurance. Yeah, you know, um, one of the reasons why Roman Catholicism lacks. Um, that direct, you know, relationship to God through Christ by the giving of the Spirit into your hearts, and they have to, you know, pray through the saints or uh, through other means. Um, one of the reasons why is because they lack assurance. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not what the Lord has given us in Christ. Okay, I'll keep going. So here he moves into this next phrase in First Timothy two without dissension or quarreling. For the second word which he uses means dispute. Why does he make this point? We know that we should not bring our vexations with us when we pray so that we feel resentful toward God as those who pray to him in anger or who chafe with impatience over the afflictions which he sends. We scarcely do honor to God if we reproach him in our prayers. Many people pretend to pray, but all they do is argue with God. They are annoyed or distressed because he does not do as they would like. So they come to God wanting to challenge him as a husband might who is unhappy with his wife. You should be doing this. You aren't doing your job. Or as a wife who asking something of her husband complains, I mean nothing to you. (laughs) Those arguments sound familiar in our age as well. That is how many people behave. It would be better if they never prayed at all than that they should come with a heart seething with anger against God. When we pray, we should do so in a quiet and tranquil mood, which is why Paul, while recommending that we be diligent in seeking God, also tells us to pray, or also tells us always to add thanksgiving to our prayers. Philippians 4 verse 6, Colossians 4 verse 2. He means that when our wishes burn strong within us, We should nevertheless be prepared to rely on God's good pleasure. If he does not immediately grant us what we want, we should wait patiently. We ought therefore to pray without complaining and without getting upset. And we should not answer God back or ask why he allows us to languish. Here, however, Paul has a different idea in mind. He is thinking of the context 
to which we drew attention earlier, namely the Jews' desire to exclude the Gentiles. Quote, we are children of God, they told themselves. God has chosen us as Abraham's offspring. We have more privileges than the uncircumcised. The Gentiles, for their part, ridiculed the the Jews. They are still mere children and still learning their ABC. They do not know that ceremonies are at an end. We are no longer children. We have reached the age of maturity so that we no longer need the helps provided by the law. Thus the Jews despised the Gentiles and refused to associate with them. And the Gentiles, on the other hand, mocked the ignorance of the Jews because they still were captive to the minor elements of the law. As a result, there were many schisms, uh, with one man pitted against another and the church almost torn to pieces. Yet, as we know, God especially commends uh, commends to us unity and brotherhood. What indeed is the form of prayer given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ? Quote, Our Father. He does not teach us, each of us, to call upon God as individuals. When I say, Our Father, I am speaking in the name of all. That is how everyone prays. Thus, we are not free to pray to God unless we are all united with each other. Whoever holds himself aloof from his fellows must shut his mouth, for he cannot pray to God in the way prescribed by Jesus Christ. In sum, we must be agreed and truly joined together before we, we approach our God and present ourselves before him. Now, given that these disputes and arguments existed, as we said, between Jews and Gentiles, Paul shows that until we have been reconciled, they cannot address God in prayer, for he will reject them. So he tells them to pray without dissension and strife. They must not fall to quarreling with each other. The Jews are not to set themselves above the Gentiles because they were called first, and the Gentiles are not to condemn them for their ignorance. All such discord is to cease. There must be full reconciliation so that all may demonstrate that they have the spirit of adoption. They must show, in other words, that it is God's spirit who directs them, he who brings with him peace and unity. From all this, we may deduce a general truth. Before we can be really disposed to pray, we must have the brotherhood and unity which God enjoins on us. He does not want to hear each of us separately, but looks for one concerted voice from the mouths of all. Although each may speak individually alone in his own place and praying to God in secret, our joint accord should reach up to heaven. May we all say lovingly and in truth, Our Father. May the word, Our, bind us all together and make us one so that we speak with but one voice as if possessing one heart and mind. This is a lesson worth remembering. Again, when we pray, we ought also to think of the churches. If we pray as we should, we must not be like many people who are happy to separate what God has joined together, all because of some trifling ceremony, which is really nothing. We must not tear ourselves apart like some dismembered body. Those who behave like this plainly show that they are possessed by the spirits of Satan and that they are driven by a kind of madness which makes them sever the bond of unity which God has established among his people. Let there be an end to quarrels of this sort and let us freely pray to God knowing that since our Lord Jesus is openly revealed to all of us, he means to draw us to himself and to lead us to God his Father. Of course, we cannot be joined to those who are separated from us. 
the papists call themselves Christians, but we can uh, but but can we really have fellowship with him in prayer? No, for they have forsaken Jesus Christ. We know that if we fall even a little away from him, we lose our bearings and wander aimlessly about. So since the papists have separated themselves from Jesus Christ, there is too great a distance between them and us. We must However, extend our hand to those who are willing to submit to Jesus Christ so that with one mind we may come with them to God our Father. And as this is a principle we all should follow, we must try as hard as we can to be at one with our neighbors if we want God to hear us when we pray together. It is as our Lord Jesus Christ declares, If someone comes to make his offering at the altar, he must first leave it in order to be reconciled to the brother he has wronged. Rather, then think that God will receive him when he is annoyed or resentful. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 to 24. Would we enjoy God's favor? Then all enmity must cease between us. For as long as we are divided, God will refuse us. He accepts only those who are members of his Son, and we cannot be members of Jesus Christ unless his Holy Spirit controls us. The spirit of peace and unity, as we said before, let us therefore learn to be friendly and brotherly uh, and brotherly terms with one another if we want God to receive and welcome us with open arms. That, in sum, is what this passage teaches us. Whenever we discover something which hinders our prayers to God, we may be sure that it is the devil attempting to bar our way. Let us avoid it like the plague. Remember that there are many who only too pleased to fight and quarrel among themselves as if God's word was meant to keep us apart. The real aim of the gospel is, as we have said, to call us to God so that we may be united in our prayers and supplications. But if those who in the heat of argument proceed to pray and are in conflict with each other, they effectively blot out God's glory, pervert sound teaching, deny God's purpose, and do all they can to spoil it. They cannot expect God to hear their prayers, for there is no unity or concord which in Christ's name and by his intercession reaches up to heaven. In addition, in urging us to pray, Paul would have us lift up pure hands. So just one comment on that. You know, I think that it's really interesting, the corporate application that he's drawing. And I think it's right. Um, but it does, obviously he's not hindering individual pursuit of prayer. And yet at the same time, if we think that our faith is, you know, our faith is certainly personal. I've heard it said before, and I think it's true. Our faith is definitely personal, but it's not private. Mm -hmm. And we are never, if we think that we're in kind of like some type of solo Christianity where we go it alone, we're, we're, we're wrong to yeah. our peril. Yeah. Yeah. In addition, in urging us to pray, Paul would have us lift up pure hands. His meaning is that we must not misuse God's name by coming to him uh, with all our filthiness, we must instead be cleansed. Now, prayer is rightly called sacrifice. When sacrifice was made under the law, men had first to wash, because our Lord wished to demonstrate that we are full of uncleanness and corruption. Wished to demonstrate. Okay, yeah. We are not worthy to approach him until we have been made pure. We are, so to speak, blighted. Naturally, it is to Christ that we must come, since the law's symbols have gone and are now of no effect. He alone can wash us. 
Yet no one should go on clinging to his filthy ways. For Jesus Christ is given in order to renew us by his Holy Spirit and to save us from our appetite for evil. So we must learn that when God calls us to himself, it is not so that we should bring Him to him our filthiness and stench of our corruption. He wants us to be well equipped to pray, pray to him. How then can we be well equipped? By depending on him for the forgiveness of our sins. When we pray, this thought should be uppermost in our minds. Alas, Lord, I come before you deeply ashamed, for I am full of uncleanness and defilement. You must therefore cast me off unless I find my cleansing in another, um, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, acknowledging our spots and stains, we must turn to the fountain where we may be washed. Since Jesus Christ has shed his blood to make us clean, we are counted pure and spotless in the sight of God. See then that although there is nothing in us but defilement, Jesus Christ has brought us the, the spirit of sanctification and at the same time has so purged us of our sins that we have access to God through him. This is why Paul exhorts us to pray, lifting up pure hands. Here, admittedly, he is thinking of the ceremonies of the law, yet he is also drawing a tacit contrast between all that was external under the law so that we may now possess in truth. This is what he means to say, quote, like he paraphrases these things often. My friends, in the time of the law and the old covenant, God ordained this ceremony for his people, requiring them to be cleansed before offering sacrifice and even before professing their faith in the temple. So why would you wash people that don't? Come on, Calvin, keep going. These things no longer apply to Christians, <laughs> but we should preserve their substance, which is that with no visible water to wash us, we should come to the blood of Jesus Christ, who washes us spiritually. Thus, when Scripture speaks of the Holy Spirit, it calls him pure water, as in Ezekiel, where he says, Ezekiel 36, 25, I will pour pure, clean water on you, and you will be clean. This promise is explicitly about Jesus Christ's coming. Instead of the ancient symbols given to the Jews, and in place of actual perishable water, it is the reality that God now gives us, since we will be cleansed by his Holy Spirit. This, then... Paul points, in order to teach us that instead of the external washings of former times, we must be spiritually cleansed, and so washed by the Spirit of God, the pure, clean water that may present ourselves before him. You know, and I think that I've made this connection as I've been preaching through John, um, but when he tells Nicodemus, you must be um, uh, born again of water and the Spirit, you know, um, in the, they've been debating about the ritual washings, you know, the, the healing or the turning water to wine at the wedding of Cana was using the purification jars for washing. And then um, the meeting of the woman at the well that Jesus gives a living water uh, that wells up to eternal life. Um, this connection of like the ritual washings is fulfilled in Christ that we need a washing inside of us. <laughs> Uh, by the Holy Spirit, re the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, renewed, born again, you know, uh, and that the drinking that we drink uh, is that we are cleansed by the Holy Spirit from the inside out through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyways, it's been fun to connect those dots. All right, although the apostle speaks here of hands, 
we know that in Scripture, this word refers to all our works. Hence it is said, I will wash my hands in innocence. I will go around your altar, O Lord, Psalm 26, verse 6. In this verse, David has the symbols of the law in mind, but he also shows us how we are meant to use them now. This may be better understood if we consider the opposite idea. When through his prophet Isaiah, God rebukes the Jews for coming into the temple with hands which are defiled, he says, quote, Do you come here to pollute my holy place by pretending to call upon me in the temple? Yet your hands are bloody. You are full of evil and deceit. You are murderers, thieves, and false witnesses. What else do you do when you call upon me with unclean hands but fight against me and do all you can to defy me? Isaiah chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Now, just as our Lord approaches the Jews for lifting up bloody hands to him, so conversely, he commands us by the mouth of Paul to lift up hands which are pure, meaning that we must not be wrapped up in our evil desires and that this must be manifest in all our life. That is what is Paul's teaching. Since we are privileged to come freely to God in prayer and to turn to him as to a father, we cannot think that he will hear us if we come with all of our natural defilements bringing with us our filth and rottenness so as to infect everything. He will not permit us to take his name in vain. On the contrary, because Jesus Christ came to make us clean and, to, and because his work is assigned to the spirit given to him and in whom we too may share, let each of us make purity of our aim. And since we cannot do it in our own strength, let us turn to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fount of all purity, and to whom we must look for every blessing. In conclusion, we note that when he speaks of hands upraised in prayer, Paul is thinking of the custom always observed by men when they pray to God. They join their hands and lift them on high. In itself, this gesture is not important, but it is a good and appropriate practice when, it is, when its true aim is in view. To lift up our hands, I say, is not important in itself, but it serves a purpose that is good helpful, and indeed necessary. Why is that? Because knowing how ignorant we are, we think that we are too far from God and that he is not close enough to hear us. This external sign is therefore meant to assure us that God is near us when we speak to him in prayer. Consider besides our laziness. We are so sluggish that we need to be stirred up to pray, and this is the way to do it. When we raise our hands, it is a suitable help which encourages us to seek God. At the same time, in our prayers, we should not approach God as if he were an idol who demanded to be served by physical means. We need to be lifted beyond our ordinary thoughts and especially to be free of all our earthly passions and of everything that holds us captive here below. And since we have no wings to fly to heaven, when we raise our hands, it is a sign that we must be lifted in spirit heavenward by faith. It reminds me of what you were just you said a little bit ago. So we see that to lift our hands is not an empty gesture if we refer to its proper aim and end. Let us learn every time we hold up our hands in prayer that it is meant to lead us to God on account of our littleness and to remind us that he alone should be our refuge and that we cannot come before him unless we rise above the world itself, unless, that is, we forsake all our passions and every earthly thought and fancy. We must put all that aside. Thus, when we say, Our Father in heaven, we know that we must seek him there and must rise to him by faith. 
Although we dwell on earth, our affections must be lifted toward heaven. This then is the significance of the hands upraised in prayer. We must learn, however, not to give, or rather to give up all such other ceremonies as are not sanctioned by God, on whom all our salvation depends. All right, so we shouldn't give ourselves to other ceremonies. Let us therefore give him all our, give him our full trust and be content to have him as our help and aid. For unless we believe that this is what he is, the practice of prayer, good though it is, will be an empty, worthless exercise. All who raise their hands to heaven but who remain firmly wedded to this world condemn themselves as if they had written their own indictment. It is as if by their own hand and sign manual, as we say, they confessed, quote, I am a hypocrite, a liar, a false witness. I come before God to profess that I seek him above while I myself am rooted to the earth. I solemnly swear that I have put my trust in him when I have really put it in myself or in mere creatures. I affirm that I have been raised to heaven by faith, yet I am immersed in earthly things, unquote. That is how those who have no true love of God and who do not look, for him, uh, look to him for help by lifting up their hands on high, put their name to a fraud which will cost them dear. They are irre irrevocably convicted and condemned. God takes this as evidence against them, so that no further case need, need be made. God clearly intended this practice to endure among the heathen in order to deprive them of every excuse. They had their idols just as the papists nowadays have their statuettes, even so, they know enough to cry, Let us lift up our hands to heaven. Who said these words? Not just God's prophets or Moses or Jesus Christ. The heathen too, despite their unbelief, always spoke this way. This can be seen in the works which they wrote in time of need, saying, Let us lift up our hands to heaven. We must lift them up. What should we make of that except to say that God forced his testimony from them as a criminal might be tortured and a confession wrung from him. This was a practice familiar even to the heathen, since men are compelled to seek God who is on high. And although they had only idols which they called gods, they nevertheless claimed that it was God and his majesty that they were seeking. Thus, if here we have evidence sufficient to condemn the heathen, and if at the last day they are sentenced for their abuse of prayer, what excuse, tell me, will we have when it's Use is made clear to us in Scripture and when God teaches us in such a personal way. So whenever we set out, our, uh, set out to pray to God, we must be sure to put aside all our earthly worries and our evil inclinations. For we know that there are many things which hinder us from turning to God. And when we lift up our hands to heaven, it is so that there, so that there we may seek God by faith. This we cannot do without renouncing every care and all the evil promptings of our flesh. Now let us cast ourselves down before the face of our good God, acknowledging our faults and entreating him to blot out all remembrance of them and receive us to himself. May he meanwhile strengthen us each day and sanctify us by his Holy Spirit until we are wholly rid of all our sins and imperfections. And since this cannot be done in the course of this mortal life, may he sustain us in our weaknesses and heal us of them all. All right, I'll close with the, the reading of the passage one more time that he's preaching. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. 
I desire, therefore, that men offer up prayer everywhere, lifting up pure hands without anger or quarreling. Any last thoughts, comments? The emphasis on corporate unity, I thought was really important, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, and then just the emphasis on avoiding hypocrisy, personal hypocrisy. You know, and that the avoiding hypocrisy, I think that that's what he means by let us not come before him and bring our defilements and our sin. You know, like yeah. when he's saying don't come, bef- don't bring all of your pollution to him in your prayers. Mm-hmm. I think that he's not saying he's not saying, oh, you got to clean yourself up and live a perfect life before God would hear your prayers. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, he's, he's, by preaching justification by God's grace in Christ alone, like, that's not, that's not what Calvin is saying there. I, I think what he's saying is, don't be deceived. Mm-hmm. You need a cleansing through Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that cleansing, your prayers won't be acceptable. So you can't, you can't remain what you are in the flesh uh, without having the go- a hope in the gospel, assurance through the gospel, and the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes through Christ alone. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have those things in your defilement and come before him without being washed clean, yeah. then God won't hear your prayers. No, no. We come as sinners. Mm-hmm. You know, poor mendicants. You know, like we, um, and, and we bring, even in the context of our prayers, our our pollution, as it were, I, I guess you could say, but trusting with assurance that we've been washed clean through Jesus Christ. Anyway, not using prayer as an opportunity for expressing even anger at God sinfully or anger at each other sinfully mm-hmm. in our prayers. I mean, sometimes our prayer requests can turn into, or our prayers can turn into actually sinning mm-hmm. in the way that we're complaining about people yeah. or, you know, Oh, bless her heart, you know. Uh, you know, like, I. sometimes that just means um, she's really dumb and mm-hmm. stupid, you know. God God pity her because she's she's far below me or something like that, you know. Yeah. We can kind of use biblical terminology and even the worship of God as a means to express our depravity. Yeah. And I think that Calvin's just trying to be aware of that and correct that mm. anyway because he mentioned that a few times that we don't bring don't bring your defilements or something like that before God and I can understand how some people might hear that and think oh well then I can't pray because I'm a sinner well no that's not what he's I don't think that's what he's saying anyway. yeah. anything else nope. all right well let's close Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for faithful pastors that preach it. And we thank you for Calvin, having done this hundreds of years ago. And we thank you for pastors that do it today. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to listen well. And we pray that you would help us to think rightly about how you have commanded us to pray, but also the joy that it is to be able to come before your throne of grace with boldness and confidence not through anything that we have done, but through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.